You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, February 1st. Soon I'll be joined by managing editor Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Jack. It's the first session of February, and all three major indices were up on Monday. Investors appear to shake off concerns about all of that speculative retail trading that largely drove the market's worst weekly sell-off since October last week. Robinhood limited their restricted stock list to 8 from 50, and you can only buy one share of GameStop and 10 shares of AMC, for example. GameStop shares actually fell today, and trading was halted again at one point. But Robinhood announced it raised an additional $2.4 billion, and that's after $1 billion raised last week, so a combined $3.4 billion, making it the biggest fundraise since the app was first founded in 2013. So this Reddit mania is still spreading. What's the next move forward? It's notable that precious metals are rising, silver futures surged as much as 13% on Monday, and that's the highest since 2013. The Wall Street Bets Forum had multiple threads dedicated to a silver squeeze and prompted this buying binge. iShares Silver Trust ETF, which is the world's largest silver-backed ETF, has received more than 1 billion of inflows since Friday. Silver, of course, is a much bigger market than GameStop shares, and some of the Wall Street Bet's most loathed opponents, such as Citadel Advisors, really stand to profit from the iShares Silver Trust. So it will be harder to squeeze this market, but the fact that such a large and liquid market as silver can be targeted by retail investors says so much about this shift we're really witnessing. Retail investors are also now looking at investing in SPACs. They're even putting money into SPACs before they've revealed what company they're buying. Call it FOMO because they see these big gains in SPACs over the last year, and they think long-term investments rather than these fast trades might really help diversify their retail portfolios. Other things we're on the lookout for this week, Republican senators meeting with President Biden to consider their $600 billion stimulus proposal, which is much smaller than the Democrats' $1.9 trillion plan, and big tech earnings this week, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Alibaba, Snap. So another busy week ahead. Back to you, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Haley. Welcome, Ed. Yeah, good to talk to you, and happy Monday. Happy Monday to you, too. So, Ed, there's so much to go over. There's GameStop, there's Silver. Uh, commodities are going up across the board. What's on your mind? What do you think uh, we should start with? Yeah, I think uh, maybe we can give a, a broad market sweep and talk about how how the sentiment feels. It does feel like uh, there's a certain degree of normalcy that's returned to the market in a lot of places. Um, 
I always look at the bonds uh, first and foremost. Uh, so I was looking at the 10 year, the 10 years trading at uh, 106.9, that's down two and a half basis points from a one nine level. It seemed like it wanted to go higher, you know, that it was moving back towards those levels where it had resistance at uh, 119 and backed off. Uh, at some point, maybe it looked like it was going to retrace, but uh, this seems like it's still range bound. It's in this new range that it's broken out to above 1%. So it's somewhere in that 1% to 119 level. And if it stays in that level, then, you know, that's largely a range bound market. Then if you look at the indices, you know, they were back to being up. All three indices were up with the NASDAQ up uh, 2.5%. And then you mentioned that commodities uh, were also up. And, uh, you know, the big breakout there was natural gas in addition to copper or in addition to silver, rather. You know, silver, you know, it tested the 30 level. That's something we're going to talk about later. And people were talking about uh, retail investors getting involved in that. But really, when you look at, at the end of the day, you know, natural gas was up more than silver. And silver is such a big market, you really do wonder how much of a play that uh, retail investors can have there. But overall, what I would say, if I looked at all the markets, it's definitely reminiscent of the, um, the reflation trade. That is, is that commodities prices are up, you know, um, uh, stock prices are up. Uh, yields are actually down, which uh, gives a little bit more oomph to um, equities, and it all is positive. Right. Um, uh, just to give a little uh, context of what you said, so silver was up uh, about 8% today. That's the most uh, it's been up in a, for a daily rate of change in well over a year. That would be something to remark upon, uh, would be remarkable, I should say. But compared to the extreme price action that we've seen in GameStop, it seems almost vanilla. Uh, is these uh, uh, Wall Street bets traders, is it possible they're having a little bit more difficulty uh, moving one of the most popular metals in the world than they are a distressed retail name like GameStop with a, with a low float and extremely high short interest? Uh, we, you know, the, this narrative is at least that they've moved on from GameStop to silver. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I uh, th there were a number of reports to that effect earlier in the morning, and I tweeted out some of those reports. I didn't uh, mention Reddit or Wall Street Bets in any of the tweets that I did, but I talked, uh, you know, about how uh, it looked like uh, retail investors might be uh, getting into uh, these trades, and that some analyst from Comets Bank was saying, you know, uh, these guys were going to run them over, or they're going to get run over, et cetera, which I thought was kind of interesting. But the long and short is. First of all, we don't even know. I, I, I think it's a tenuous to non-existent connection to the things that were going on with GameStop. Uh, uh, there were some comments in that Wall Street Bets Reddit forum that were deleted, but by no means was that forum dominated by the uh, the move on to silver. Okay, so the concept that they're now leaving GameStop. Uh, and and the trades that are associated with that whole nexus of large shorted bets, it, it's it's unproven. And moreover, going to your question, th it's not going to work uh, with silver. It's a much larger market. I'd be skeptical. I mean, anything's possible, right? Uh, and given what happened at GameStop, you might think, okay. But to the degree that it's a large market, and they you know try to go in size. You're right, 8%, uh, that's pretty good. That's the best in over a year. 
but it's not, you know, 300 percent. It's not 500 percent. So they're really not they're not going to be able to move it the way that they did uh, something like GameStop. Right. Uh, and I just want to go back to GameStop and get a little bit into the mechanics of it. Uh, you saw outlet, outlets like Bloomberg and CNBC reporting that the short interest is down. The hedge funds who, who were extremely exposed um, to rises in the GameStop share, they've covered their shorts. And just on Wall Street Bets today, I, I saw the, that the reaction to this news was extremely negative. They posted lies. There's no way the short interest is still there. Um, I actually uh, uh, got some pretty good data um, from S3, uh, which which gives uh, real-time data on the uh, short interest as a percentage of the float, which is actually one of the hardest things to get your hands on because I think FINRA reports the data twice a month. But to get real-time data is uh, is quite hard. So, But... Um, the short interest of GameStop, it was at about 130%, which was last week, which was you know what it was reported to be. Now it's at 53.15%. Uh, so uh, still very high, still very high, but um, uh, well down from uh, its peak of in being in the 130s and 140s, where you know there it was literally dry kindling that were it was ready to be uh, lit on fire. Now it's more like you know some wet leaves, or it has some potential to explode. But um, you know, I mean, National Beverage Corp. Fizz, uh, which is Lacroix, if, if you drink seltzer water, uh, they have a higher short interest now than GameStop. Um, so, so the shorts have uh, covered a little bit; they're still a little exposed. So, what do you make of that, Ed? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, given the pain, uh, and also given the statements that were made by the hedge funds that uh, that received the most pain, it would suggest that they've gotten out of the positions. Not only did they feel the pain because th those were extreme moves, they uh, they have every incentive to get out. You know, imagine that you're a hedge fund that lost, you know, um, billions of dollars uh, even on, on this uh, this trade. Would you really go back in and uh, reestablish a position uh, and then potentially lose money again? I think you would probably close out your position. So, there are a lot of people who have probably closed out their positions for sure. Right. Um, and by closing out their positions, they lost money. And we, we saw that Melvin Capital was down 53% uh, only one month into the year of 2021. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I really do wonder uh, where the risk controls were there. You know, I asked that question. Actually, I got almost a thousand uh, uh, likes on, on when I asked the question, where the heck were the risk controls? And there were one or two people, Alex Gurevich and I think uh, John Hempton in particular, who replied uh, that I thought in, in a positive way, saying that, look, you know, if you're in the trenches, it's a little bit more difficult. It's not, you know, you know the whole concept that uh, it's pretty easy to figure these things out and not lose 50%. It's, uh, it's, it's not really quite that simple. You know, these were massive moves. Uh, I'm not really, you know, I understand where they're coming from, but the reality is, is, is that these guys were naked. They were swimming naked on the short side, or they completely, uh, you know, uh, blew away their, 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 their risk stops. And uh, and they got their asses handed to them Be because at the end of the day, risk is about dealing with unforeseen circumstances. It's not that you're dealing with tail risk and you're going in naked saying that, 
this tail risk is not going to materialize. It's more that right from the get-go, you're giving up a little bit of the upside in order to uh, make sure that uh, you're covered if the the move goes in the opposite direction. Right. Um, and I, I get uh, what the points that Alex Gurevich and John Hempton were saying. If, if you have a block of 30,000 shares or you're short 30,000 shares, it's you can't just uh, you know go on E-Trade and buy 30,000 shares. You have to put in a price that's above the current market price and try and find a uh, a seller of those shares. And um, especially if uh, you know there, there, there are no shares available, you could be charged extreme prices. So this is by no means official, and I'm not saying that anything transacted anywhere close to that. But there were uh, asks for the stock I saw on Bloomberg of $10,000 for GameStop stock. <laughs> um, and right. I think the, the official top tick, official top tick was 470 or something around there, but there were st uh, there were stocks that were sold at $550. Right. Um, so it's it's always you know I remember uh, one time I was in a bar with Mike Green and Josh Wolf, um, which by the way an interview with them came out today, interestingly enough. But uh, and Mike said to me he said prices don't exist. Uh, basically, what you see when you look up Google and you see it goes like this, that is a, a compendium of a series of transactions. Um, that if you're a big player in the market will not be available to you. That's why when you want to build a position, if you're an institutional player, you have to, uh, you know, sort of uh, stack up these trades rather than buying in one um, fell swoop. Um, and I want to turn to the derivatives picture. Um, you know, I've been reporting a little bit on the, the gamma squeeze in uh, GME, and I, I actually have some new data for for the folks watching this. Um, but so how about we go to this new uh, bubble chart from today that, that I got, and then we can go into your charts, uh, sort of analyzing what delta and gamma really are and what they really mean. So okay, this, is a chart, this is a chart um, from today. Um, again, on the y-axis, uh, it's the moneyness of the option. So the, the strike price, uh, what percentage of that, that is of the underlying price right now. And on the uh, uh, y-axis is the open interest. And the size of the bubble is the uh, volume of the trade. Um, so you'll note that it's, it looks pretty similar to the one on Friday. Um, uh, uh, out of the money options, excuse me, uh, deep in the money options um, dominate in terms of open interest with one exception. And that is this huge outlier on the right all the way uh, to the top. And that is a call um, uh, with a strike price of 800. So about 330% of the money. By the way, all these options expire for GameStop on February 5th. So, Ed, that made, and we were talking a little bit before this, that made me think that the the cards, uh, it, uh, 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 the, the cards for a gamma squeeze, it, it could be in the cards um, because people are buying these out of money options. Um, but you had a slightly different interpretation. So why don't you tell me um, what you're thinking about that? Yeah, so I'll tell you what I'm thinking about in terms of the gamma squeeze. Uh, also, in terms of you know uh, the fact that these shorts are have lowered their positions, and then how that chart uh, corresponds to last week and then this week. So what I'm I'm thinking is is that when you think of a um, when you look at uh, a gamma versus strike price, okay. So I, I have a chart. This first chart that I'm going to show you it shows uh, call options and put options and it shows you what the gamma is uh, for various prices, and, and, and then it shows what the strike price is, uh, or the at the money strike is. And what you'll notice in 
both calls and puts is the gamma rises very significantly toward um, the highest level around the strike price. So at the money, um, options have the highest gamma levels. That's the first thing to realize as well. Okay, so that's number one. Then I have a second chart, which has four different uh, curves to it. You know, it shows uh, 14 day, 42 day, 77 day and 197 day options. And what that's showing you basically is, you know, very short dated options to longer dated options. And what you'll notice is, is that a, a much larger percentage of the gamma uh, is at the uh, the strike price. So the for the for the uh, short dated options. So what that means is, is, is that, you know, the rise in gamma for short dated options is enormous as you go towards uh, the money. Uh, so, you know, that previous slide that we showed before, this is, you know, four variations of that given the length of your option uh, contract, the expiry date. So there are two things that you can draw from this is that, um, you know, if you want to get the most gamma, uh, which means that you want to, uh, you know, there's the, the delta is moving the most. Uh, you uh, you want to have options that are at the money, and you actually want them to have a very you know um, the strike price has to be or, or sorry the the expiry has to be fairly short. So short dated options at the money have the highest gamma. That's basically what I'm trying to say. And so right. you you have two strategies here. One is is that you want to you want to have high gamma so that you can get these delta. Um, a hedging from the market makers to move the stock up. And so as uh, what happens is, is if you have uh, enough things that are around the strike price and slightly above that you, that you put on and you put it on in size, you can create enough delta hedging to move things into the zone where gamma explodes and there's more delta hedging and probably there's going to be some shorts that cover and then therefore there's more delta hedging, et cetera. So there's a whole nexus of trades that are happening that are at or near the money. But those are expensive. You know, the closer you are to at the money, the more expensive those options are. So you're going to want to, uh, in order to get the biggest bang for your buck, uh, in order to make the most money out of this trade, uh, you're going to want to have deep out of the money options. And and so that's what that bubble, the 800 bubble that you showed me it does. So it's sort of a barbell strategy. On the one hand, uh, you want to make sure that you're uh, hurting the shorts by getting uh, the, the, the highest gamma so that you can move the delta hedging up as much as possible. But then you also want to make sure that uh, you have as much leverage as possible. So buying deep, deep out of the money. Um, calls and, and and when those calls go up you know when the when the price goes up those calls will be closer to in the money and they will escalate you know massively in price so what you saw in your bubble chart is is uh, a combination of last week and uh and this week because the 330 number i think is last week's uh deep deep out of the money one week calls that's, they didn't have the 800 contract because, you know, it wasn't at 800. It was yeah. like, at, you know, 50 or, or 30 or whatever it was. 
And so when the the move spiked up, you know, massively, all of those contracts went into the money. Uh, or, or now they're actually some of them are out of the money because uh, GameStop sold off today. But yeah. they also put out an 800 contract. So there are tons and tons and tons of people in the retail community right now who are trying to play the exact same game they played last week with the 800 calls that they played with the I think it's the 300 or the 330 calls. And my supposition is uh, they're not going to uh, make money. That you know the the gamma squeeze is over for the reasons that you showed us at the beginning when you showed us that short interest had uh, been taken out of the market. You know this isn't a hundred and thirty six percent short interest. This is like forty five percent short interest. And you know you're not going to get as much short cover. And you're not going to get that massive gamma squeeze. And so eight hundred is never going to happen. And so all of those options, which are all short dated options. They're going to expire worthless. Yeah, uh, Ed, thank you for explaining that. I think that was really helpful. I like to think of it as buying in the money options or near the money options um, that, as you said, are um, extremely short dated weekly options that have the most gamma. That's kind of like uh, lighting a match um, and to get this this uh, thing going. Buying the super out of the money options, they actually have a low gamma. But it's kind of like pouring uh, kerosene on the on the fire. The problem is, if you only pour kerosene on a pile of wet leaves, you're gonna get nothing. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm I'm just looking uh, now. Now that the short interest is uh, much much lower, these the sort of uncut gems bets of thinking that this you know this is gonna go nuclear. This is um, let's buy an option at at 800. Um, let's drive it to 1,000. That hopefulness is still there. Um, and um, but it's uh, it seems less likely. I, I will say, and I was talking to Weston before this, that the delta for that eight hundred option, eight hundred call option that expires this Friday, is eleven or point one one, indicating he said that um, it has an eleven percent chance of expiring uh, in the money. So I think that Weston's that's at least what the market is assigning. So I think what Weston is you know prediction when he when he said it to me and Nick uh, on the exchange that. GME closes above a thousand or below ten. I would probably um, uh, make that a little less polarized. I would say, I, I, I'd say it likely closes this week below a hundred. Um, but if it doesn't close below a hundred, it could go above a thousand, and that's a very, very small percentage chance, but still existent. Of course, with the caveat that um, you know, I, I'm, I don't really know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Just like no one knows what's going to happen. Um, but you know, it's it's fun talking about the the market structure with you, Ed. Um, just before, um, just the last thing on the options. By the way, go let ahead, me just ahead. say yeah. that uh, that uh, those options with that eleven delta, that's definitely based on uh, volatility levels that uh, were skewed, you know, higher because of what happened last week. All of those options are, pr- are the price for those options and the implied volatility are much higher than they would be if we didn't already have the gamma squeeze from before. So again, you know, it's yet more proof that these people are piling into a trade that played out perfectly last week, but now that it's already played out, I think that the chances of it's happening again are much lower, especially lower than is implied by uh, the price of the option and the implied volatility. Right, Uh, Ed, I think you're dead right about that, and I'm actually really glad that you brought that up, because that ties really well with this last chart 
I want to show um, where the white line on the left axis is uh, is GameStop GME, and the red line on the right axis is a uh, twenty put option, a put option of strike price of twenty that expires this Friday. And if you can believe it, um, on Wednesday, the the put option was priced at about uh, a little below forty cents. But as the stock increased, again, a massive departure from the put option. Again, if you want a put option, you want the stock to go down. As the stock increased to above $400, the price of that put option actually increased, meaning that uh, the market was pricing in that uh, at $400, it's more likely to be below 20 by Friday than it is at $100 last Wednesday. So uh, that just goes to show that the underlying stock price, uh, or, uh, the current price, um, is is only one factor in the pricing of an option. The other factor being, as you said, implied volatility. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, interestingly, I would say about the implied volatility and, and my supposition with regard to uh, those uh, those short dated uh, calls that are deep out of the money, expiring worthless. What about the puts that on the other side? Implied volatility has gone up. It's made the puts more expensive uh, n- just because of the involatility, not because, uh, you know, they're more in the money. Maybe that's the call to make, actually, is to to buy the puts this time instead of the calls. Yeah, that is definitely a play as well. And then there are the people who are saying uh, it, uh, the volatility is so overpriced, I'm going to sell you a put. Um, and it's funny, Ed, if you, if you had bought a put option uh, for February 5th, put option of, of $20 uh, last, last Wednesday, um, it was for $0.40, cents, so $40 your option premium. Um, as I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself here, but you would have made money as the stock skyrocketed higher. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, you can look at these things all day. I mean, for me, the bottom line though is that the market seems to have digested it this week. It's behaving more normally across a wide swath of different asset classes, and you know, the people who are still in this trade. I think that uh, you know the air is being sucked out of it, and GME is more likely to fall than it is to to rise. Uh, what I would also say is that this whole silver uh, squeeze thing, that's another uh, trade that I'm not a, a fan of. I don't think that it's going to happen. I think that, you know, the 8% pop that we got, that was great. It was a nice little follow on from GME. Uh, hey, if you, you had some uh, some options on that, kudos to you. But uh, that squeeze, I don't see it lasting. We'll, ju- we'll have to see tomorrow what happens. Absolutely. Um- Ed, uh, moving on to a slightly different topic, uh, I read uh, your blog yesterday that that spoke more about the spirit of this move, namely that the the names that are really receiving attention are not the technological high flyers like they were in the 90s, but old names, uh, companies like GameStop, companies like Blockbuster, even though Blockbuster is a a bankrupt entity. Uh, What can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, how would we frame it? Like, if we wanted to put a frame around it, I think it's interesting um, that you could the frame you could put around it is that there are 
their larger fat tail uh, distribution outcomes for those particular names, and so that they're more interesting it, from an optionality perspective. This is which is why people are in those these names, both on the short side and also in terms of these options. Because think about what happens in the future for the for these companies. On the one hand, it's either companies that are passe. Uh, GameStop is kind of passe, Tootsie Roll uh, is, or have been affected incredibly by the pandemic, like uh, American Airlines, as an example. And so, you know, when we get to the other side of the vaccine and we get to a new normal, we don't know what that new normal is going to be. It could be that that new normal is one in which GameStop, uh, no one ever goes to a GameStop practically. Now they just download. The pandemic has changed their behavior permanently. Same thing for AAL. You know, maybe uh, American Airlines, no one wants to get on a long haul flight to Cancun or to Cabo San Lucas because why would they do that when they can go somewhere that's closer by uh, and, and avoid getting into a, into a plane, which, you know, increases their risk factor a little bit more. So there are outcomes where it's very positive for companies like American Airlines, but there are outcomes where it's incredibly negative. And that, you know, those fat tail outcomes are what people are looking at. And I think that's why these are the companies that people are thinking about the most. Uh, There are very extreme outcomes. It's like, you know, bankruptcy and liquidation, or they've been beaten down so much that they explode to the upside. Mm -hmm. And Ed, what can you tell me about why you think these beaten down companies are exploding to the upside. We went through a phase in 2020 where it was the companies showing tremendous revenue growth, um, you know, over 100% per year. It was it was the technological uh, companies that were the companies of the future. Now the companies that are being uh, short squeezed and being are skyrocketing are not the companies of the future. They they feel like the companies of the 1980s or 1990s. Uh, do you think it's uh, can you attribute any sort of psychological motivation to that, or, or am I reaching here? No, I think uh, you're you're spot on because basically, if you believe in the reflation narrative, the answer would be that those are the companies, especially to the degree that the new normal is, you know, mostly like the old normal, which is why you believe in reflation. Those companies are going to do well. What you're saying is, is, is that, you know, we've beaten down stuff so much because of the pandemic. And now that we have the vaccine and reflation is coming and we're going to have an incredible you know, pop. These stocks are the ones that you wanna be in because they're gonna benefit the most. They're the ones that people sold off the most. They were giving up for dead. Even if it's business as usual for them, they were trading as if they were about to go bankrupt and they're not. So mm-hmm. let's, let's buy in. So I think that there is that, that psychology there. Um, but that's very tied to the reflation trade. Once the reflation trade is over, if it becomes over, meaning that we get further into this tunnel uh, of the vaccine and we find that l- people get less ebullient about uh, markets and about uh, the backside of the um, coronavirus pandemic, then I think people will start to reevaluate and there'll probably be less bullishness for these names. And the short sellers at that particular juncture, uh, they will they will reassert themselves and they will come back into the fold. Mm. Uh, Ed, just you, you mentioned short sellers at the end there. This has been a wake up moment for the long short hedge fund that 
model of the market neutral hedge fund. We're going to make money no matter what because we're going to go long X and we're going to go short Y. And because we're so smart, X is going to go up and Y is going to go down. And uh, even if they both go up, uh, X is going to outperform Y. So everything is going to be okay. Well, we saw what happened with Melvin Capital. Everything was not okay. So that's why we've seen these record degrossing of books for these long short hedge funds. Um, what do you think about pure activist short sellers? You know, people like Mark Cahotis, who, by the way, did an interview that comes out Thursday, or or Carson Block, uh, who's who's a regular on Real Vision. People who are hunting out fraud and saying, "I'm gonna, I feel so uh, confident in that this is a fraud. I'm gonna put my money behind this." Um, do you think there's a distinction there between uh, activist short sellers and the long short hedge fund book? Well, it depends. I mean, it goes back to your question about, uh, you know the uh, the sizing the, the the risk controls i mean to me the risk controls are a sizing and a hedging uh, question uh and if you listen to the carson block uh jim chanos interview that we ran jim chanos was talking about how he thinks about it and to me there's there's a lot of prudence in what he's talking about you know you want to size correctly and you also want to hedge and if you don't do both of those things uh, you know, tail risk can bite you in a big way. There's no way uh, that you can claim to lose 53% in a, in a single month and 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 say we were appropriately hedged ahead of time. We didn't have poor risk controls. Something is wrong if your fund is uh, is that leveraged to one specific trade, which apparently it was with Melvin Capital. Right, and that's the problem with short sellers is that. You know, Ed, let's say you go long Apple and Apple declines. Apple is less of a problem in your portfolio, uh, even though you were wrong. If you short Apple and it goes up, it becomes a bigger and bigger percentage of your portfolio because you have to keep on posting more and more collateral. So these things can can spiral out of control. And if you don't have the prudence to manage risk, things can uh, blow up like we saw this time. But Ed, I want to turn to question and, and pick your brain on another question, which is the question of Robin Hood. We saw that they... Uh, trimmed the number of stocks from 50 to 8 uh, of the stocks that they limited trading on. Um, yet questions remain about what's really going on there. I saw in, in your blog, you posted it, it was really a clearance problem, really a liquidity uh, issue. Could you, could you give uh, us some more detail on that? Yeah, I think there were one or two different uh, clearing houses that uh, asked Robinhood and a bunch of other brokerages to post more collateral. And the new narrative is, is, is that they were pressured, like Citadel, for instance, pressured uh, one of the the two to uh, to make it happen. I don't believe that narrative uh, is necessarily true. I I would tend to to discount it in general. I think that the volatility was so extreme that it makes sense that the clearinghouse would ask them to post more collateral. And then the question becomes, uh, who's their customer? You know, th these are commission free trading platforms. Uh, uh, where are you making your money, and is it aligned with the incentives and 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 the the needs of the people who are using your product? So, the way that I look at it is, if you're not paying for something, uh, and the only reason that that product is exists is to create a mass audience, like Gmail as an example, or like Facebook, then you are basically the product. There's something your flows in the case of Robinhood, you know, because they're selling flows over to, uh, you know, high frequency traders. That's what that's the product. That's where they're making their money. That's where their incentives are aligned, because those are the people who are paying them. 
what you want is, is you want your incentives and your needs to be aligned with those of the company who's selling you the product because they sold it to you and you're their customer. And that's not what we see with Robinhood. And I think that that's an intrinsic uh, sort of uh, problem. You know, that's a tension that they're going to have uh, for a long time until they figure out how to solve that tension. Right. I, I think there are three ways uh, that these retail brokerages make money. Number one, they invest money that's just stored as cash in your account. Number two, they lend out stocks, securities lending, which is kind of related to all this, um, and they earn a little bit on that. But those two things are nowhere close to to make enough money. I think the primary reason that these these businesses are not just re uh, profitable businesses but growth businesses is uh, selling data order flow. And, and might I add, I don't think it's not just Robinhood; it's E-Trade as well. Um, it, it's it's all of these other retail brokerages. So, Ed, I guess my question is, what can retail traders do to protect themselves? Do they buy and hold, now transact? You know, what what are what are your thoughts? I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, Robinhood they settled a, a, a case in December uh, that was based on practices where you know they got a uh, a, a high bid from one of their uh, customers uh, to get the order flow, and you know they put cost that on, they pass that on to uh, their their customers. You know, basically their uh, retail brokerage customers were paying more money than they would have had Robinhood had a different deal with the uh, high frequency trading outlet. And so they did a deal uh, where they didn't, uh, they neither denied nor accepted that they did X, Y, Z, you know, and, and, and then their representative said, actually, you know, that was a different time. We're, we're constantly evolving our business. We're in a different place. When I read that, to me, what it said is, is, is that, you know, this is, you know, caveat emptor for the, the individual. To me, we're going through a mania. And just like there was a mania uh, in the 90s that, and, and things changed afterwards, they're going to change now. And it's not clear to me whether or not no cost, uh, um, no commission brokerages will survive. Maybe one of the outcomes here will be actually that you will have to pay in order to make transactions just at a minimum to align the incentives of the brokerage and the brokerage customers. Right. Um, Ed, my final question for you is, to, to what degree do you think that this, not just speculative mania, but the problems with the retail brokerages and the clearinghouses and the fact that the, the volatility is way beyond their models and they're having to restrict customer activity because if they don't, they're going to have serious liquidity issues, which, by the way, you know, uh, an adage uh, that I've, I've read is that if if a CEO goes on CNBC and says that the, their company doesn't have liquidity issues, they tend to have liquidity issues. You know, a few <laughs> banks from 2008 come to mind. So uh, Robin Hood, Vlad Tanev, he went on CNBC and said, we don't have liquidity issues. Uh, it's appearing that they do. Um, what, what do you make of those issues? And to what degree, you know, Rao put out a piece this, this uh, Sunday uh, saying that this poses systemic risk and that the, the, the daisy chain could unwind. Um, what do you think of that? What I think is is, is that uh, volatility is bad in that way, uh, because what we've seen is the volatility that was so great metastasized in ways that were unforeseen. You know, not only did we get the gamma squeeze on this individual uh, case, but the gamma squeeze led to 
you know, a 53% loss for a hedge fund. Just imagine it, how systemic that hedge fund could be in a, in a larger situation. And it also led to uh, liquidity problems for the company, the brokerage that was uh, hosting many of the people who were actually profiting, who were getting a positive outcome. What that tells you is, is, is that when uh, volatility goes up, um, there are unforeseen consequences. And when you have a mania, as we do right now, oh, that's likely to happen. Uh, and so those are sort of the black swans uh, of the future. Mm. Mm. Uh, sorry, that leaves me one last question, which is more of a white, more of a white swan than a black swan. But um, what are your current thoughts on the variants? Um, I, I read your piece today. You seem quite concerned about them. Oh, you mean uh, the uh, the coronavirus variants? Yes, yeah. yes, I do. Yes. Um, I would I would put it this way: that we're in a race against time with the variants. That uh, we know the variants exist because we have had so many infections that they've been able to mutate. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case that the mutations uh, can't be stamped out with this vaccine or you know some rejiggered version of the current vaccine crop that we have, where we get like a booster shot, say, uh, in 2022. But the, the, the grace one, I would call it, is the concept that Coronavirus is here to stay. You know, there. I saw that John Barry, who wrote the Great Influenza, which I read, you know, probably ten years ago. Uh, he wrote that he thinks that it may end up that the this coronavirus thing becomes just like influenza, where every year we have shots, and to the degree that coronaviruses are infectious and, and deadlier than flu, either we learn to live with it and and the mortality, or uh, there's a, a future where certain businesses, certain activities are changed forever. And when we, we don't interact quite in the same way, we have a new normal that is reasonably different from the old normal. And there'll be an adjustment period to get there. And some there'll be winners and there'll be losers as a result of that. Right. Well, Ed, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much. Yeah. Great talking to you, Jack. Yeah, and Ed, speak of new normal, um, are you going to have to do some shoveling in the for snow? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting my son to do the shoveling. Hopefully, I mean, he's he's doing it, you know, like uh, bitching and moaning, but uh, he's still out there. No, <laughs> he's doing it now. Nice. Well, I I'm going to do that right after. I'm going to take this uh, jacket off, put in something a little more uh, informal. Yeah, you you guys have it worse than we do. So. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ed. Talk soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.